Foul Perfection Essays and Criticism by Mike Kelly Edited by John C. Welchman 2003 Part 1 Preface This series of books comes as a surprise to me. I was shocked to discover just how much paper I have covered with ink. In my youth I aspired to become a novelist, until I realized I was no good at writing fiction and wisely, I believe, chose to pursue my interests in the visual arts instead. I came to writing through the back door, so to speak, first by writing short statements about my artworks, which developed into performance art monologues and, finally, into essays. The essays were not labors of love, rather they were response to my dissatisfaction with the way my work was being written about critically. I decided I had to write about my own work if my concerns were to be properly conveyed. Also, I was not pleased with how contemporary art history was being constructed, so I felt it was my duty to raise my voice in protest and write my own version, whenever I could. In a sense, then, much of my writing was reactive. It never truly seemed that the decision to write was my own. If it weren't for the urging of my friend John Welchman, this book would not exist. Special thanks to Patrick Painter for his generous support for the provision of illustrations. Sadly, though, many of the images that originally accompanied these essays couldn't be presented here. John and I would also like to thank the following for their assistance in preparing this volume, or for kindly agreeing to allow images of their artworks to be reproduced here, David Askevold, Cody Choi, Darcy Hubler, John Miller, Sharon Avery Falstrom, Plaster Foundation, Sebastian, Sixth Street Studios, Survival Research Laboratories, Eleanor Anton, John Waters, Emmy Fontana, Glenn Bray, Nancy Udelman, Memo Rotella, Catherine Sullivan, Rita Gonzalez, Julia D'Agostino, Fahad Sharmini, Tim. Martin, Metro Pictures, Alexander and Bonin, Reagan Projects, the Paul Theck Foundation. Thanks also to the journals, publishers, or institutions that commissioned and or published first or subsequent versions of these writings, Art Forum, Grand Street, Paquette, Tex Zulkunst, More and Less, Spectacle, PAJ, A Journal of Performance and Art, C31, Sonsbeek, Arnhem, Styrische Herbst, Graz, Costello di Rivara, Turin, Deutsch Projects, New York, Gallery Hauser and Worth, Zurich, Kanz Verlag, Osfelden, and Gesellschaft für Aktuell Kunst, Bremen, Confederation Center Art Gallery and Museum, Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, Paulet de Beaux Arts, Brussels, Magazine, Centre National da Contemporaine, Grenoble, JRP Editions, Geneva, and Les Presses du Real, Dijon. Mike Kelly, Los Angeles, 2001 Introduction This is the first of three projected volumes assembling for the first time a diverse selection of Mike Kelly's writings in the numerous genres, idioms, and styles he has taken on, or invented, during the last quarter of a century. Kelly's generic range is quite remarkable, 
it includes creative and critical essays for art and alternative journals, essays for exhibition catalogues, artist statements, scripts for sound sculptures, liberty, dialogues, real and imagined, performance scripts, manifestos, numerous interviews, as both interviewer and interviewee, polemics, panel presentations, screening introductions, radio broadcasts, public lectures, CD liner notes, invented case histories, and poster texts. The variety of subjects and issues about which he has written, noted, and talked is equally broad, ranging from commentaries on and editions to his own work and that of teachers, friends, colleagues, and heroes, to meditations on contemporary music, science fiction, and popular culture. He has produced important reflections on the nature of caricature and contemporary dialogues with it, on ideas and effects of the uncanny, and on UFOs, gender-bending, pop psychology, adolescence, repressed memory syndrome, and architecture. Among other issues, his interviews discussed the Detroit underground in the late 1960s, conceptual art, feminism, sexuality, rock music, formalism, the relation between New York and Los Angeles, politics, and the pathetic, and writing itself. I have organized this profusion of vehicles and themes in a manner that I hope is both useful and accessible, but that also acknowledges some of the play, irony, and overlap that abound in Kelly's work, whether written, performed, videoed, drawn, or installed. The present volume surveys two of the leading aspects of Kelly's writing, collecting his major critical texts on art, cinema, and the wider culture, and his essays, mostly commissioned for exhibition catalogues, on the artists or art groups David Askevold, Oivind Folstrom, Douglas Hubler, John Miller, Survival Research Laboratories, and Paul Theck. Volume 2 will concentrate on pieces that were integral to Kelly's own art practices from the mid-1970s to 2002, including his most influential statements and manifestos, texts from photo editions and posters, a sequence of humorous pseudo-psychological interpretations and quasi-fictions, introductions to videos, and writings on architecture and ufology. A projected third volume will collect, edit, and annotate a selection of scripts for the celebrated series of performances Kelly wrote, directed, and performed or co-performed in the concentrated burst of activity between 1976 and the mid-1980s that established his reputation as one of the most innovative contemporary artists working on the West Coast. Even three volumes will accommodate only part of Kelly's writings. There is no space for his signature essays, liner notes, and panel discussions of contemporary music, or the large and exciting body of interviews, recorded conversations, and broadcasts. While not really known as a writer by many in the art world, in large part because of the multiple geographic and media locations of this work, considering volume alone Kelly takes his place alongside the theory-oriented abstractionist of the historical avant-garde, Vasily Kandinsky, Pete Mondrian, Kazimir Malevich, as one of the most productive artist-writers of the 20th century, ironic company, perhaps, 
for an artist engaged in projects in the conceptual vernacular who is staunchly against the whole idea of non-representational art one. This volume begins with Urban Gothic, 1985, written just a couple of years before Kelly virtually abandoned live performance. With its distinct oral qualities, spoken word rather than written text, two and persona-driven incantations, the piece bears explicit traces of the styles and methodologies Kelly used to develop his performative work, reminding us that from the start his writing took on experimental folds and complexities that matched the material and thematic overlays of the performances, drawings, and installations. But while the style and form of Kelly's critical writing modulated after 1985 into a combination of first-person critical opinion, contextual observation, and historical and thematic revisionism, what he once termed the library work three that underwrites almost all of his projects in different media remains a constant resource, it's just like doing a research paper. He once remarked point four indeed, Kelly's commitment to research, compilation, and citation, what we can term his archival impulse and its reassemblage, dismantling, or explosion comes as close as anything to a center for his intergeneric activities and the notion of epoetic concentration or condensation emerges as the key figure of this continuity in idea generation 5. So while it was never abrupt, the shift from speaking, singing, chanting, or ranting, first improvised, then based on a performance script, to writing texts for publication demanded new forms of attention and reference, as well as a turn in Kelly's orientation to research. Owing partly to teaching duties in the Graduate Fine Arts Program at Art Center College of Design, Pasadena, 6. He was conscious, in particular, of a move in the mid and later 1980s from what had been a habitual involvement with historical and avant-garde literature to reading in art history and criticism and cultural theory. I never read literature anymore, he said in conversation with Heinz Norbert Jocks in 1999, I read almost only critical theory and history books. 7. The result was a self-conscious attempt to write straight text s in a manner that was neither subjective in or artsy 8. Kelly's formative influences in literature included the Beats, especially William Burroughs, early 20th century avant-gardists like Tristan Zora, Raymond Roussel, Alfred Jerry, Gertrude Stein, Raoul Hausmann, and the futurists Filippo Tommaso Marinetti and Luigi Russolo. He read Novelis and Lotriment, Nathaniel Hawthorne and Herman Melville, William Beckford and Matthew Lewis, Vladimir Nabokov, Gunter Grass, Jean Janet, Witold Gombrowicz, and Thomas Bernhard, as well as practitioners of the new novel and their associates, such as Thomas Pynchon and Samuel Beckett. Among his own generation, Kelly was a supporter of the literary circle that grew up around beyond Baroque in Venice, California, where Dennis Cooper, Bob Flanagan, Benjamin Weissman, Amy Gerstler, Tim Martin, and others made regular appearances. Early on, his reading also included the psychological studies of R. Diet Lang and Wilhelm Reich and, in politics and social criticism, the Yippie manifestos of Abby Hoffman and John Sinclair. 
He was also interested in fossilized systems of thought, like the theology of Thomas Aquinas, and pseudo-out-of-date scientific constructions, including Jerry's Pataphysics or the writings of Lucretius.9 with the exception of the eccentrics of the genre, H. P. Lovecraft, P. Cake Dick, J. Jeep Ballard, he generally dislikes science fiction, however, because its exoticist aspirations were so often at odds with its innovative intentions, Ten Kelly learned many lessons from these genres, appropriation. Collage composition, humor and irreverence, anti-institutionality, the diagnosis of repression, system construction and parody, all of which pass by one means or another into his art practice and the composition of his writings. With all this reading behind him, and a confessedly bookish aside to his early development, it is hardly surprising that one of Kelly's dreams as a youth was to become a novelist, something he admits was frustrated by a self-professed lack of literary talent, I couldn't write, he said in a recent interview, and underlines in the preface to this volume. Point 11 As a student at the California Institute of the Arts from 1976 to 1978, he later confessed that an important motivation for his move to writing was provided by his alienation from and ignorance of prevailing theoretical discourses in the conceptualist milieu that dominated the school at this time. I really developed my writing skills, Kelly noted, to combat the way his work was received. I didn't want to. I'm not a natural writer. I did it on purpose and it was not a pleasant task. 12. A key aspect of Kelly's thought about the theory and practice of writing can be found in his negotiation with the modernist notion of collage and, in particular, with the aesthetics of fracture and structure associated with the new novel and post-war experimental fiction, that of Pynchon, Burroughs, Janet, among others, as well as with postmodern media practice. Kelly is careful to separate the writing techniques he developed for performance from either Joycean stream of consciousness or pure montage and cut-up. It's actually not cut-up, he commented, it's very much organized like improvisational music. I always had a more compositional approach to writing 13 always away, then, of the limitations of fracturing strategies, Kelly points out that the aesthetic of disassembling ultimately fails as a strategy of resistance because it emulates the sped-up and ecstatic effects of the media itself. 14. Kelly's views on disruption exemplify the complex adjudication he sought, for while he admits to the use of disruption in a Brechtian sense, which promotes the return back to the real, he opposes the solicitation of more radical forms, as in the work of Burroughs, desiring instead to arrange transitions between a string of associations. By simulating natural flow, Kelly would thereby produce an almost ambient feel. 15. In a panel discussion on the occasion of his collaborative exhibition with Paul McCarthy at the Vienna Secession in 1998, Sod and Sodi Sock OSO, Kelly offers the notion of fracture and collage perhaps his most sustained consideration, focusing on the idea of appropriated or appositional criticism. The artist's selection of texts by Georges Bertilly, Wilhelm Reich, 
and Clement Greenberg in lieu of a catalogue can be considered as one of the many layers of reference Kelly identifies in the installation itself. Like that work, the chosen texts can be read historically, formally, poetically, or in any combination. The act of assembling them, and the particular intensities with which they might be consumed or ignored by viewers, read with or against each other, and with or against the work and its own context and references, reinforce Kelly's own sense of postmodern relativity, his refusal to think about texts or objects in terms of their content or their truth value, but rather as complex entities with their own structures and histories, blind spots and illuminations, relevance and detours. Working across and against fashion and revivalism, using these texts for their poetic value but also as a rationale for the materials in the exhibition, Kelly notes both his distrust of the truth-giving or denotative function of writing and that he has become more interested in his later career in the historicist situation of texts, which, he suggests, has come to supersede my interest in the formal aspects of writing. With the provocative notion of a socialized visual communication, Kelly attempts to draw the work, its forms, its audiences, its conceptual and historical references, and the writings it occasions, designates, or appropriates, into a multi-layered compositional totality based on an open logic of association, consumption, and repressive return point 16. Another step in the move from performance slash script to essay or manifesto arrived with Kelly's development of his signature black and white word image combo pieces, always referred to by the artist as paintings, which originated around 1978 as a part of his performance apparatus but emerged a few years later as independent works. They pair uninflected outline figures painted in black acrylic with box or sidebar text in a profuse range of calligraphic styles that stand out against the relative homogeneity of other postmodern mergers of image and text in the work, say, of Jenny Halzer, Barbara Kruger, or Joseph Kosuth.17 in these works, language acts as a destabilizing agent that intervenes across what Kelly described as culturally standard images complicating their eligibility to 18 the image-text combinations. Themselves are illustrations, flow charts of meaning clusters, that establish their prominence in the artist's work following the diminishment of the object and a new interest in manners of speaking and address. As, most notably, with the phototext of Kruger, important relations are staged between the captions, slogans, clichés, put-downs, and jokes Kelly inscribes on his illustrational paintings and the thematic concerns of his longer writings. Point 19 I suggest elsewhere that Kelly's turn to statements and essays and the delivery of sonic components to his artworks in the dialogue series, for example, may have been a kind of compensation for the descripting of his images apparent in the late. 1980s as he turned to more consolidated presentational structures and the ironic tactility of craft materials.20. But as with other elements in Kelly's work, there are several origination narratives that underwrite his decision more than 20 years ago to render his own accounts of his art and ideas. I was so unhappy when I was younger with what critics wrote about my work, 
he noted in conversation with Isabel Groh, that I was forced into a position of writing about it myself. 21 A primary motive in the shift to criticism, then, was to defeat what he viewed as the Chinese whisper of falsely imputed intentions, passed as assumptions and misrepresentations from review to review at the outset of his career. In a real sense, Kelly's battle against Sueda reportage and vicarious intentionalism anticipated more general conditions of criticism achieved only in the 1990s, only recently, he suggested in 1998, has criticism been seen as itself like art, or fictive in some sense, or constructed, representing the writer's point of view, 22. While focused on the idea of condensation, the styles and textures of Kelly's writings are typically profuse. One response to the wide net of research he feels obliged to cast is the compilation of a lot of notes very fast, you know, baba bam 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 bam, 23 many of his texts start out with strings of concepts and quotations assembled with speed and rhythmic compression. Often departing from these concentrated clusters, the spectrum of Kelly's styles ranges from an exposite mode, trying to explain to people what I'm up to in a very clear way, mostly reserved for catalogue essay commissions, through the explicit corruption of this clarity using parodic forms of pseudo-exposition and high flights of fancy, 24 to the penning of wild manifestos, 25 like going at home, going at home, to appear in volume 2. Each mark on this gradient of types is set against the notion of a standard introduced above. Exposition is normally organized against standard interpretation, critical consensus or received opinion. Pseudo-exposition utilizes, but then derails, the standard formats established for critical and artistic writing, while wilder moments of Kelly's writing, more evident in Volume 2, merge document and fiction, common sense and reverie in fusillades of ironic moralism or parodic social zeal. Several commentators on his writings have been perplexed by the range and overlaps between these textual types. One designated the more experimental texts great perverse objects because of the difficulty they purportedly create for art critics or theoreticians, on the one hand, notes Jean-Philippe Antoine, you take the place of the critics, and forbid them to do their job, you become your own critical theorist. But on the other hand, if one reads the texts, one perceives something else going on 26. In all its idioms, even the most straightforward, Kelly's writing is laced with humor and irony, which arise from the many gaps and dissonances he builds into his woefully faulty structures. In the image text combos, for example, with the in-image titles and commentaries, the text might mimic the work, or operate as another figure in a visual proposition, Isabel Groh, offering another layer of meanings that mediate, often unstably, between jokes, red herrings, and real issues, Kelly, point 27, the compounding of textuality with, or as a supplement to, the visual image is a part of Kelly's plea for scrutiny, the kind of close but open reading that punctures the social veneer. And probes underneath his rearrangements of mass culture. Point 28 there is, then, 
both a literal and a figurative side to Kelly's central ironic-slash-comedic strategy of playing with figures of speech. 29 humor in Kelly's work is also a function of his wider view of art as the byproduct of repression. Part of the humor in my work, he notes, is about making that obvious. 30 in his writings, repression is identified with histories and reputations passed over or suppressed by the critical status quo, and Kelly's revisionism often crackles with irony as he re-engages with what he views as omissions or misinterpretations in the historical record. Finally, humor and irony are necessarily caught up in another conceptual focus of Kelly's work and aesthetic as a whole, his proposition that art is crucially connected to ritual, and that one measure of its power and success is founded on what he terms the kind of structural analysis of the poetics of ritual 31. For Kelly writing can be considered as just another among many possible media, drawing, performance, video, photography, etc., an idea underlined by Paul McCarthy in 1998 when he noted that, I think Mike and I view all mediums as equal, we use whatever medium is appropriate to the idea. 32 and by Kelly himself when he remarked during a radio interview in 1994 that art has a syntax. That's like a written piece of language. 33 thus, while Kelly is attracted to the literary conditions, writerliness, or poetics of writing, these apparently medium-specific qualities are also associated with other artistic attributes in a kind of transverse exemplification of the metaphoricity that defines them. In the case of Freud, I like Freud's writing simply as literature, because it is so metaphorical, Kelly likens this aspect to a sculptural way of talking about the construction of the personality which could be connected to Freud's own interest in antiquities, those things which are dug up out of the earth as evidence of the past. 34 This suggestive formula offers another of the striking conjunctions between form, trope, material, and historical meaning that characterize the most convincing of Kelly's works. There are other filaments of consistency in Kelly's intermedia practice that connect his writings to his visual art. The most immediate arises from his long-standing interest in the relation between an artwork and that primary field of texted intervention provided by the title, I've always, Kelly noted, been very careful about titles. Typically, Kelly's titles offer a deliberated field of reference for the image or installation, sometimes acting to counteract the tendency to psychologize a work, as with Zen Garden, whose peaceful, contemplative title is intended to divert the viewer's projective reading of the animals hiding under the blanket. 35 Kelly really refuses to designate his works or calls them untitled, except in those instances when he wants to point to the fiction of material self-reference. 36 Another Intermedia consistency can be found in his commitment to implied narratives and associational flows that arise from the spaces between compressed images and texts, while a third emerges in his repeated conflation of various genres to produce absurd or surprising effects, which he likens to the genre confusions of Burroughs and the idiosyncrasies of Lovecraft.37 and all relate to an overriding suggestion by the artist that media and materials are subordinate to ideas, I use various 
media because they seem appropriate to the idea that I want to work with. And I don't have a real investment in any kind of particular materials. I've never really loved materials or had a super fetishistic relationship to them. 38 for Kelly, the artistic process almost always originates with ideas and the activity of thinking first is decisive. 39. Kelly has often expressed his resistance to forms of art that trade too overtly with the biographies of their makers, while at the same time aspects of his personal history and development have clearly played an important part in all phases of his career, though with renewed emphasis in the last decade, from the late 80s on there was a general tendency for critics to psychologize my work, and that was something that surprised me. As a response I felt I had to bring myself into the work or make myself part of the subject of the work in order to problematize that psychological reading. I had to make it difficult by giving a lot of false information. 40. The dichotomy between structure and information and personal history is even more vigorously present in the progression of Kelly's writing and can be seen, almost nakedly, in the difference on this question posed between the two sections of the present volume. While seldom lacking in opinion, color, and personal style, the essays and comment pieces in the first section address themes and issues within which Kelly's presence is largely remained as composition or critique. The essays in the second section, on the other hand, with the exceptions of the shortest piece of all, on Marcel Brutheus, the piece on Paul Theck, and the discussion of survival research laboratories, discuss a selection of male artists who are, or were, friends or mentors of Kelly, Miller, Escavold, Hubler, and who shared aspects of his personal and professional history. Even the essay on Falstrom, whom Kelly met only once, in his student days in Michigan, closes with an epilogue recalling the awkward circumstances of their encounter. Such proximity to his subject matter, supplied as it is with an intensity of seeing, sharing, reading, and exchange, offers one of the more compelling aspects of his writing, but at the same time, of course, presents an obstacle for the more critically objective Kelly and his readers to negotiate. But the strand of personal and professional knowledge woven through the catalogue essays joins with another dimension of subjective investment visible across the volume, the intermittently irascible, cavalier, or cranky voice that drives these writings forward. Kelly has always been candid about the disadvantages, repressions, and dissatisfactions of his youth, even suggesting, half-seriously, that his recourse to art was simply a more productive way than just being a drug addict or a criminal or a juvenile delinquent or all the other ways that you can vent your dissatisfaction. Emerging from a personality that was once naturally miserable to mean-spirited and angry, 41 Kelly's style and opinions are characteristically frayed by occasional misanthropy or art-world cynicism whose boldness makes for a convincingly strident and partisan criticism all but absent through the 1990s, except in those unappetizing vestiges of right-versus-left polemic. Reading the pages that follow, we really have the sense that Kelly indulges in what he once termed the Zen effect, the lazy leveling of meaning into a kind of value-free equilibrium in which the reader or viewer is invited merely to float 42.
While success in the art world obviously complicates his outsider ethos and blunts some of his more rebarbative remarks, it cannot be denied that Kelly has defended his positions on aesthetics, popular culture, contemporary music, and the art world at large with conviction and rhetorical tenacity. Most of the present volume is comprised of writings that propose a thoroughgoing critical revisionism predicated on a set of principles and arguments that recur in subtly different formulations. Kelly is concerned with figures or themes that don't quite fit, or that trespass across paradigms deemed separate or sacred by sanctioned critical interests. His revisionism can be thematic, as in the essays on caricature and the uncanny, or monographic, as in the essays in section 2 that question the ageist assumptions underwriting the partial omission of Hubler's confounding exercises in planned futility from the conceptualist avant-garde, Falstrom's relative neglect by the partisans of pop, Thek's anomalous location between minimalism and critical figuration or, or what Kelly views as an undue lack of engagement with Miller's art and writing. In the precincts of New York postmodernism.43 Along with his disavowal of traditional writerly excellence and his intermittently cantankerous style, Kelly's refusal to accept canonical histories of contemporary art is one of several measures of his badness as a writer. But being bad is not simply a concession Kelly ironically grants himself, it is, as Yvonne Rayner noted in another context, a symptom of the difference between normative conventions and assumptions and the artistic inflection of a discourse, whether filmmaking, writing, or whatever. Kelly's flirtation, then, with what he described as allowed bad writing, 44 reaches for the strategic permissibility of a bad style, the relative dysfunction and opacity of which challenge the operating systems that occasion it, whether criticism, commentary, or theory. Most of Kelly's essays are unpublished, or first appeared in alternative rather than mainstream journals, only two, Foul Perfection, Thoughts on Caricature and the Essay on Survival Research Laboratories, came out in leading art magazines, Art Forum and Parquet, respectively, or were commissioned for catalogues accompanying exhibitions which, with the sole exception of the brief piece on the Korean-American artist Cody Choi, took place outside the U.S., in Arnhem, the Uncanny, Turin, Thek, Zurich, Brutheus, Brussels, Hubler, Bremen and Cologne, Falstrom, Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, Canada, Escavold, and Grenoble, France, Miller. Both anthologies of Miller's collected writings, Kelly's introduction to the second is reprinted here, were published by presses located overseas, the first in France, the second in Germany. As a prophet in the wilderness of his own national culture, it is hardly surprising that Kelly's views on the U.S. critical establishment are often skeptical, even polemic. Art magazines, he remarked in the mid-1990s, are special interest magazines like any other, they are trade magazines. Increasingly there has been no attempt to hide that. Whereas art criticism used to adopt a tone of criticality, putting things in some kind of historical perspective. 
Using social critique, it's increasingly obvious that it's some kind of fluff or advertising for artists or trends or movements or galleries. 45 Kelly is especially disappointed by the kind of criticism that does nothing more than describe, acting, in effect, as a kind of bookmark for prospective buyers. Kelly once remarked that he was made up of various histories, I have a painting history, a black and white history, a performance history, a sculpture history and a stuffed animal history. 46 With the appearance of this volume, and others on the horizon, it seems clear not only that his history as a writer should be added to the list, but that it functions as a kind of supermedium, sound, talk, slogan, inscription, metaphor, critique, script, poetry, assemblage, history, polemic, binding all. The others together. I can raise my voice in protest, Kelly once remarked, but I'm not the one who writes the history, 47 well, not so fast, now you're not the only one. Section 1. Urban Gothic. JCW. While he had published excerpts from his performance scripts in venues such as High Performance and the Journal of the Los Angeles Institute of Contemporary Art, Leica, since 1979, Urban Gothic was Kelly's first essay to appear in print, coming out in the third issue of the short-lived Los Angeles Journal Spectacle in 1985. It was conceived in response to what Kelly viewed as a new romanticism, with symptomatic expressions in mid-1980s film, music, and art cultures that layered recycled Gothic imagery over various types of industrial representation. In these cultures, urban decay is redesigned with a new infusion of the Gothic romantic imaginary. Unlike the darkness and decay of the film noir tradition, which tended to image the social present, the new romanticism typically took forms that were timeless or transcendent. Urban Gothic is not written in the relatively transparent style Kelly would later adopt for his critical essays, beginning with his consideration of caricature, Foul Perfection, 1989, which is included in this volume. Instead, its tone is parodic and its shifts of voice and play still related to his writing for performance. Loosely adopting the flowery prose of a decadent, fin de siècle flaneur or romantic-era travel writer, Kelly had been reading 19th-century Gothic and Orientalist writings by William Beckford, 1760-1844, Joris Karl Huysmans, 1848-1907, and others, he narrates a magic carpet tour of the new Gothic world in which associative reverie is punctured by episodes of experiential sublimity. As with the multiple personas inhabiting his performances and character-driven statements, the disembodied voice of or foreground here should not, of course, be confused with the more critically objective Kelly we encounter quite consistently in his later essays. An Architectural Hunt H. P. Lovecraft never set his stories in his own time, they took place in his father's era. In the same spirit he dressed decades out of date, often wearing, in fact, his dead father's clothes. Point one, his diction regressed even further to 18th century archaic usage. In his view, the 18th century was the last commendable epoch, because it was the last century before the advent of the machine, the symbol of modernity.
In Lovecraft's personal life, however, a reversion of just one generation was enough, for even this small span of time gave him enough leeway to see the modern world, the world of constraints, slip away and fall into ruin. Apocalypse of Freedom, nip this bud before it has a chance to blossom in an unsupportive environment. Get on the bus that goes back in time. Take a tour through the 13 original colonies. Look for pure American architecture, preserved and unspoiled, hidden away in the back alleys of small towns. But make sure they don't house any Chinese cooks. There's a conspiracy afoot, a yellow peril, a many-headed, slant-eyed, buck-toothed, dog-eating hydra that's worming its way through the sewers of the city point two so far, right now, at this moment, it is contained in the waterfront areas, places where Shanghai becomes a verb. This conspiracy converts social commentary into poetic reverie. On the waterfront 3. Marlon Brando is is running down an alley, and it's not pretty. It's a backdrop for a failed life. It is decayed, overwhelming, an architecture that smashes down the already downtrodden, swallows them up and spits out weasels, crooks, and gangsters. This decay is part of a one-to-one -one relationship. It has the clarity of tragedy, ugly people live in ugly places. There is nothing hidden in that, no mystery in the broken shadows that darken this alley. This black is part two of the black and white pair. The choice is obvious in this multiple choice, black is always bad, always the second choice. Blade Runner 4 Same place slash different time. The same guy is running down the same alley but now he has a different name. He is way off in the future now. There is the same architecture, the same weasels, crooks, and gangsters now. This shows the continuity of human nature. In this slightly more high-tech future architectural decay takes on a more pleasant tinge. Everyone knows that in the future all will be slaves to machines. Environmental decay becomes humanistic in this light, slum living is freedom. Big Brother and Techno-Control keep their noses out of the gutter. These freewheeling gypsies of the future are just like us. But their ruinous surroundings are somehow more beautiful. They take on the lusciousness that can only come from removal, just as the horrible parasite, once removed and viewed through the window of the microscope, becomes pretty. This is the decadent beauty of strangeness. Have you heard the one about the rotting meat that glistens like jewels? I think Salvador Dolly told it.5 This beauty is deceptive and is the enemy of the rational person. It flip-flops too much. It won't stay put long enough to send a clear message. This beauty mesmerizes, you don't care what it means. It could be unhealthy. Jewelry made from dead meat may spread disease. Decadent beauty sightseeing tour. All aboard. We're loading up the plane for a flight around America, through the deserts of the Southwest, over the South Bronx, and down into a Twinkie factory and a shopping mall. Sometimes we go at fast speed, sometimes we go in slow motion. The tour has an American Indian name, a name both ancient and indigenous. 
The name refers to the end of the world. Point six. This is a tour of comparisons. Towering tenements sit next to ancient rock formations. Everything is made one. The effect is like a well-printed, glossy calendar. The sheen of the photos is more apparent than what is pictured. Factories pump out products to the beat of trance music. You are sucked into the rhythm and hum along. There is a studiousness in the extremes pictured that verges, ludicrously, on polarity. Come now, join in the group suspension of disbelief, don't think about it anymore. All things are beautiful when viewed through the Vaseline-smeared lens. First stop, South Bronx. Yes, great white hunter. I see the similarity, now, Buana, that you have so kindly pointed out. These buildings do bear an amazing resemblance to the buttes of Utah. And it is wonderful how things have sped up. When the condemned structures are dynamited, I can see in a few minutes the erosion that in nature would take countless eons. The sight is indeed awe-inspiring. While there we notice the curious pictographic markings made by the natives. Spray-painted scrolls cover everything. Point seven. Could these be the work of Lovecraft's dark brotherhood of impenetrable oriental minds? We are lucky enough to capture some of these primitive artists as well as a few brute musicians. We plan to bring them back with us to our own neighborhoods for entertainment. Perhaps this happy blanket of color will soon cover all of our houses as well. Sometimes a dark day needs a little brightening. Bury a corpse in loud clothes and paint the exterior of prison's plaid, I say. On the way home we take time to stop again in the desert and name all of the stones. Titling them after crumbling pseudo-gothic structures seems most appropriate. Dracula's Lair, Usher's Haunt, Strawberry Hill, Fonthill Abbey, Charles Dexter Ward's address, and the folly are just a few that are rescued from obscurity. Point eight. Some of these gnarled rocks are used to decorate my Chinese garden. The twisted nature of the oriental mind has already been referred to, instead of raking leaves they rake sand. The garden is also dotted with fake ruins of castles made of chicken wire coated with plaster. They are constructed and painted by professional stage set builders. The cheap construction is an asset, for with the first rains they sink into a heap and become even more poetic. Scattered among them are similar models of factories based on the paintings of Charles Sheila. Point nine. These I am not so sure of, they are still a little too new, too modern. Perhaps my mind is still overstepped in 18th century gardening theory and must be updated. Modernist architecture is the most popular out-of-date architecture at the moment, but I haven't grown accustomed to the relevance of its dinosaur qualities yet, though I am making an effort. The radio blares out a song by Johnny Guitar Watson, we got to strike on computers before there ain't no jobs to find, ten he tells the tale of a music store salesman who attempts to sell him a guitar that plays itself. He resists, knowing that buying it would ultimately result in the extinction of his profession. On the TV there is a story about workers striking to prevent the technical upgrading of their factory. Modern machines mean no work. They are unhappy. 
Having a foreign worker steal your job is bad enough, but having a machine do it is worse. My sentiments exactly. I like the old machines, the first ones, if I have to like them at all. As I said earlier, I'm trying to get adjusted to things modern. Now that they are dead, and the new things are postmodern, I am slowly becoming acclimated to them. I live in a warehouse in the downtown district. Now that all of the businesses have failed, it is populated by artists. The skeletal remains of once thriving factories can be seen from the picture window in my loft. The glisten of the Sheila painting has darkened to the rich brown patina of a Rembrandt. Wonderful. Since the structures are no longer functioning, they have slipped into my territory, the realm of non-functionality, the world of aesthetics. A volume of science fiction illustrations from the 1930s sits on the coffee table. The book consists entirely of pulp magazine depictions of cities of the future. They duplicate exactly the scene outside my window. An exciting wave of confusion sweeps over me. Am I in the past or am I in the future? I clutch the book to my breast and weave dizzily. Images of Art Nouveau grain elevators spin in my brain until it settles on one, the perfect image of the perfect residence. I see a scene, forming like a mirage. It's of an aged corn silo standing alone in the middle of an endless plain of auto-salvage junkyards. The cap at the head of the tower contains the single room. It has been decorated by the foppish hero of Hoisman's novel Against Nature.11 A modernized version of an old Japanese perfume distinguishing contest is in progress.12 Instead of scent, the contestants sniff and differentiate various brands of gasoline. This is my ivory tower. I am Rapunzel. My hair immediately grows to floor length whilst I pluck a lute and blow panpipes. Yes. My console-colored tresses streamed down the tower side like come down a masturbated phallus. It stands erect and alone, my ivory tower. Slowly I recover my senses and come back down to earth. When I re-examine the phantasmagoria that has just transpired, one image stands out more clearly than all the rest, the infinite junkyard. Ron Cobb's moralistic political cartoons of the 1960s come to mind images of the world as one vast consumer dump site. Point 13 These pictures are distasteful, but there is no heroism here. Pick up, instead, the new walking guide to WPA murals and, staff in hand, set out. Point 14 The Grand Canyon of Industrial Murals resides in Detroit. Diego Rivera's depiction of a Ford Auto Assembly Plant. Point 15 The quaintness of the technology brings a smile to knowing lips. Though as jumbled as a junkyard, these portraits of metal pieces still maintain their majesty. No, it isn't the newness that makes them appealing. The painting is too dated for us to believe that these components, once assembled, would make a new automobile. The sublimity lies in the idea of backward time travel, that in destruction the manufactured objects fall to pieces in the same order in which they were constructed. The smell of the grease monkey and the roar of the crowd. Metal shrapnel is flying everywhere. The racetrack is full to capacity, 
but first we stroll through the handicraft pavilions. One room contains massive Dennis Oppenheim sculptures that are spinning and shooting fireworks. Point 16 These are unfulfilling as allegory, weak sparks of interior pyrotechnics. No more of this sitting in Buddha-like introspection. The real event is going on outside. The halftime show is in full swing. Some machines from San Francisco are engaged in battle. Point 17 They rip, tear, and blow holes in each other. Oh, youthful vigor, they don't just sit on their fat asses, they fight. The crowd screams for more, but it's time to move on to the big spectacle, a simultaneous program of demolition derbies, figure-eight racing, and most impressive of all, especially altered, giant pickup truck with 15-foot tires that slowly churns over artfully arranged rows and heaps of Japanese cars. The truck, appropriately named Bigfoot, spits fire and sprays auto parts as it goes. Point 18 at games end the arena floor is an ocean of equal-sized metal filings. The sound of metal slamming together is intoxicating. H. P. Lovecraft wrote that literary style ended with the advent of the machine. Luigi Russolo, the Italian futurist, claimed that music, or its modern version, noise, started with the invention of the machine. In his 1913 manifesto, The Art of Noise, he states that before machines the world was mostly silent, its boring calm interrupted only occasionally by tumultuous natural events such as tornadoes, hurricanes, and avalanches. Point 19 The band stepping up now is heir to this master's teachings and has transcended the quietness of the bubbling brook and arrived at festive urbanity. These captured brute musicians turn out to be not Bronxian but German. Point 20 Far from being displeased, the inner landscape assumes the picturesque view of crumbling castles along the Rhine. The band's name, in translation from the mother tongue, refers to modern buildings collapsing. This connection with modern apocalyptic imagery doesn't quite jibe with my previous conception of destruction through decay. The original futurists were slightly more in line, in that they believed in blowing up old buildings, museums mostly 21, and these assisted ruins, like the aforementioned castle garden decorations, still have the soothing feel of natural decomposition about them. Anyway, the Teutons step into a ring of fires burning in old oil drums and begin bashing metals of various types together. We are joined together in a railroad yard and at each number's climactic chorus a train speeds through the site, adding force to the moment. The bodily scarification patterns of certain primitive Negroes are approximated on the performers by heroin needle tracks in elaborate patterns, skulls are a popular motif. Oh, you bad boys! The young poet's modits are striking a chord in the very soul. This is the perfect musical accompaniment for watching splatter films. What a delightful horror. Feel sorry for the parents whose delicious terror is restricted to gothic romances and the tepid writings of Mrs. and Radcliffe, 22 watts an hour. What wind. These natural signifiers of unease from 1930s Hollywood chillers are long since dead, like the movie stars who responded to them. The sonic meeting of two pieces of junk is sometimes so overwhelming I feel on the verge of fainting. 
It gets confusing as to whether it is the sound that produces this effect or the image resulting from the chance combination of objects randomly picked out of a pile to be struck together. The vibrations between two objects in relation to each other offers the pleasure of magical thinking, where aesthetics can truly affect life. The proper placement, the proper arrangement can set off unnatural forces, altering reality in a way that is simpler and impossible for woeful action to do. Turn back the clock hands and turn back the hands of time to the good old days. The way in which H. G. Wells's time machine is pictured in the movie version of the book is embarrassing. Point 23 A simple-looking contraption, a spindly, Victorian design, it looks so basic that a child could have built it from spare parts in the basement. So boring, tepid as the overused analogy between time and clocks itself. Let's go down into the chapel of my basement, the shadowed domain of the tinkering genius. Every furnace, water heater, meter, and pipe is the image of Morton Schoenberg's God, 1917.24 freed now from Dadaistic modernist nihilism, it reassumes its proper numinous place. Who is responsible for this construction and design? Whose aesthetic is this? Like others who have marveled over the wonders of antiquity I incline toward accepting the idea of alien interventions as a possible explanation for its strangeness. Stroll with me now through the factory scape celebrated on album covers labeled Industrial 25 Music from Movie Soundtracks often tells a story all its own. In this case it tells a horror story. No, architecture itself doesn't frighten anyone, it is its foundation in social architecture that does so. But this, like the ghost of a ghost story, is invisible. After a while its presence is doubted and its actions are attributed to another, more obvious, cause. Still, one pauses to wonder, that which lies on the surface is often not of the same material as that which lies below it. Empathy, Alienation, The Eva JCW. This unpublished, undated short piece was probably written in 1985, following a visit by Kelly to the Eva Theater. Located at 1605 Eva Street in Hollywood, California, the Eva was a traditional theater until the early 1960s, when it began to be used as a concert venue. It functioned as a strip joint in the 1980s and early 1990s, then housed the Los Angeles Inner City Cultural Center in the mid-1990s, before being abandoned and resuscitated once more in 2000. One prompt for this reflection on the formal structure of strip dancing was Kelly's interest at the time in the model ramp, particularly in the kinds of relation it brokered between performers and audience. Kelly used such a ramp in his performance Plato's Cave, Rothko's Chapel, Lincoln's Profile, with the band Sonic Youth, at Artist Space in New York, December 1986, where it acted as the stage for an intermezzo of manic dance and other disruptive actions, breaking the rhythm of the poetic-slash-dramatic dialogues of this complex piece. The structure of the performances at the Eva is strictly regimented, but at the same time, extremely sloppy. The constant interplay of performative facade followed by the breakdown of the pose is truly Brechtian. 
a number of dancers strip in rotation on a curtain proscenium stage. A dancer makes her entrance, walks out onto a stripping ramp that extends into the middle of the audience area, and dances to three songs of her own choice. With each song progressively more clothing is removed until, by the final song, she is completely naked except for fetishistic adornments like shoes, belt, or necklace. Most of the men in the audience sit in the seats adjoining the ramp so they can lay dollar bills on it for the dancers they particularly admire. At the end of their sets the women pick up the money left for them and leave by way of the stage, the same way they came in. All the women follow this format, the structure is constant. Yet there is an incredible amount of variation within the limits of these rules. Some dancers enter the stage with the front curtain completely open, while others choose to have the curtain open partially, like a doorway entering onto the stripping ramp. Some exit the stage between songs to remove items of clothing out of the sight of the audience, while others perform this operation on the ramp, incorporating the act of stripping as a segue from one song into the next. In all cases, though, clothes come off in regulated steps organized in relation to the songs. The rules governing the flow of action are so obvious that whenever there are glitches it is embarrassingly evident. One stripper, for example, who chooses to leave the stage to remove her clothing after each song, takes far too long to return. The choreographic flow of the strip is interrupted, when she gets back, it's as if she is starting all over again from scratch. Technical problems are constant, amazing, considering the simplicity of the performance structure, and so numerous they seem to be a purposeful part of the show, as if the director, if there is such a person, has consciously employed modernist theatrical techniques to alienate the audience. The jobs of opening and closing the curtain, calling out the names of the dancers, and timing the playing of the music cassettes are handled by one man, located above and in the rear of the theatre, in the position occupied by the projection booth in a movie house. His voice crackles an introduction out of a loudspeaker, the music starts, and the dancers enter. There are constant false starts, clumsy stops, wrong name calls, music that starts in the middle or comes on blaringly loud or inaudible, and much dead time when nothing much happens at all. Once more, the sheer number of mistakes is almost inconceivable given the simplicity of the format, which is repeated over and over again in what amounts to a never-ending rehearsal. The women do not even attempt to conceal these problems. If the music is too loud or too soft, they simply stop in the middle of their act and yell up to the technician to fix it, sometimes making comments to the audience about his ineptitude. One woman does actually leave the ramp to start over again from the beginning after the wrong music is played. The dancers' routines are technically flawed as well, causing the viewer to become uncomfortably aware of the nature of their construction. The dancers are rather theatrical and the women adopt various personas, some sluttish, some girlish, some tough, some showbiz professional, but all share a defining pose of ecstatic sexual absorption. The men are intoxicated by this leading role and drawn into it as if in a dream.
The experience is similar to watching a traditional play in which one becomes entranced by the believability of a character. And, as in acting, craft plays a role in delivering this credibility, clumsy transitions threaten the believability of the pose. The world of fantasy does not allow for the intrusion of worldly problems. Consider the final act of removing the G-string to expose the genitals. Of course, this is the climax of the dance, what everybody has been waiting for, and there is much anticipation and worry attendant to it. The action must be performed correctly or the whole lead-in structure of the rest of the dance will have been for nothing. The removal of the G-string can be a recipe for disaster. It gets caught on the shoes, it snags up, comes off unsymmetrically, or gets dragged up and down the ramp like a piece of toilet tissue unbeknownst to the dancer. All eyes are fixed on this tiny garment, and if it doesn't come off smoothly and is not disposed of correctly it suddenly becomes the center of attention, overshadowing even the genitals it is designed to spotlight. The dance is a failure. It is probably in response to such potential problems that some of the women choose to leave the stage to remove their garments, a gesture that in the end reveals the dancer as lazy or technically unsophisticated. One mark of the event's quality resides in the ability of the dancer to perform this action gracefully or to blend any mishaps skillfully into the routine. One dancer does this quite well. Appearing in a blatantly anti-feminine punk persona, she makes no attempt to be sexy and thrashes about to heavy metal music. Her appeal lies in her confrontational wildness. When it comes time to take off her underwear she pauses for a second, then pulls them down dramatically, adopting the ludicrous attitude of a prim little girl, knees held together as if caught in the act. The contrast of this infantile pose to her previously belligerent persona reads as a searing slap in the face to the girlishly coy stance adopted by most of the other strippers. But she doesn't stop there. She makes an extended display out of the removal of her panties, clumsily plopping down on her butt to pull them unceremoniously off, and then getting them tangled up in her high heels. For a minute she lies there in this embarrassing position, feet held in the air tied together in the tangled g-string to milk every pitiful drop from the tableau. The mistake is turned into an asset and revealed as a critical part of her act. All the strippers strive for a unique image, an economic necessity since their entire pay for the evening derives from the tips laid down on the stripping ramp. Their rewards are a direct result of the impression they make on the viewers. The women are in competition with each other to extract money from what is clearly a limited resource. Women who are less attractive must make up for it by being better dancers, more exotic, more alluring in some sense than the others. The range of types is actually quite varied. Today's group consists of a lolitaish young woman, looking barely old enough to be in high school, who does much feline stretching upon the floor and who has subtly decorated her blonde pubes with glitter, a fleshy young woman who adopts a natural attitude, doing no floor work, leg spreading, or other typical stripper moves, who dances with her eyes closed, lost in interior reverie while mouthing the words to her songs, most radically, she dances barefoot, every single other dancer has worn.
high heels, an exotic, older woman, perhaps Latin, whose show-stopping finale is to lie on her back and wink her vagina, a jazz-oriented dancer very good at sinuous leg undulations, who performs a very funny confrontational side gag, she rhythmically slaps the inner thighs of her spread legs while, as if playing with a baby, she looks a man in the eyes, shakes her head back and forth, no, and then, finally, up and down, yes, a hefty woman who lolls on the floor fingering herself and running a pearl necklace between her vaginal lips all the while making kissing and sucking sounds, and, finally, the heavy metal chick whose iconoclasm takes her beyond the boundary of the ramp into the adjacent seats, where she muses balding hairdos, while staring defiantly into the men's faces making a spectacle of her disdain. Like all the others, of course, she must carefully weigh her actions and decide how far to go, because, like every other stripper, she is still there to collect the money tossed up on the ramp. Alienation can only go so far. The separation between audience and dancer at the ramp's edge is the most important feature of the event. It functions in a manner quite unlike traditional theatre, where the invisible fourth wall acts as a portal into a separate reality. No such suspension of disbelief ever truly occurs at the EVA. The situation at the EVA is closer to avant-garde stage practice, where the gap between audience and fictional reality is accentuated to promote shifts in the viewer's mode of attention. The male viewers at the EVA are torn, they quickly vacillate between being absorbed in their erotic fantasies and being made aware of their actual, restrained situation. In a film or theatrical play, the viewer watches the action as a voyeur, getting lost in fantasy, and thus losing his or her sense of physical presence in the theater. At the EVA, the sense of physical presence of the viewer must be maintained, otherwise the man will not pay to see more. Also, the evocation of fantasy in the man at a strip club is potentially too volatile to allow for full suspension of disbelief. The men at the EVA literally have their noses pressed right up against the dividing line between fiction and reality. The actresses play out the men's fantasies just inches away from their grasp. They come right up to the men, tempting them, they beckon them to touch them, look them right in the eye, and dare them. They shove their genitals right in their faces. More than anything these men want to break through the fourth wall and merge with their fantasies. But they dare not. If a hand starts to move toward a dancer she warns, don't touch, if this command is ignored, burly bouncers are poised to roughly escort it out of the theater. Pity the poor avant-garde dramatist who has to compete with the Eva, who aspires to distance an audience from the unrealities of theatrical stage action it doesn't even care much about, that it is already distanced from anyway. The avant-gardist would give anything for an audience as strongly connected to its fantasies as the men at the EVA. Again, it is obviously a necessity to keep the men at the EVA from getting too caught up in their fantasies. They must be reminded continuously of the restrictions placed upon them, made aware that they are under constant scrutiny. In addition to the ominous presence of the bouncers, 
one means by which they are periodically jarred back into reality is the very looseness of the theatrical structure and the performative mistakes described earlier. That the acting styles of the women who veer in and out of their personas, betraying their relationship to their characters, perform the same function. The coup de grace occurs at the end of the strip when the dancer stoops to pick up her money. As soon as the music stops, the facade ends. She immediately ceases pretending to be interested in the men, makes a sarcastic show of thanks, if she offers one at all, then grabs the money and runs. The performers leave the theater through a side door located within the auditorium itself, so that the audience sees the previous dancers exit, in their street clothes, as new dancers enter the stage. The off-stage dancers and bouncers talk openly throughout the performances about scheduling and other matters in the foyer of the theater, making no attempt to conceal such functional issues from the patrons. It all seems like a planned conspiracy to keep the men mindful of their unempowered position within this theatrical world. And yet, the house recipe has to include enough imaginative freedom, enough of facade, enough dream time so that the experience isn't completely alienating. The men have to derive some measure of pleasure. But the situation at the Eva is so alienating, one is left to wonder what this pleasure could possibly consist of. The behavior of the audience at a strip house reveals a strange double bind at the interface of intense fantasy and overt restriction. Unlike the fictional, cinematic depiction of male audiences at strip houses as boisterous, cheery, and rowdy, the opposite is actually the case. Seances are livelier. There is no show of emotion, no whooping, hollering, or wild applause. In small private interactions, when a woman is confronting a man one-on-one, -on -one, you might see some lip-licking or kiss-blowing performed by the man, but these gestures are restrained, secretive, like bids at a high-end auction. As if drugged in a dentist's chair, the men sit frozen and immobile, lost in interior thought. Their stiffness of demeanor reveals the intense concentration, the incredible will to block out all that is going on around them, all that is trying to impose on and destroy their fantasies. Like obstinate children that have been denied what they wish, they would throw into a stubborn, rock-like trance, clinging to their individual mental images. No one is allowed to come close, the boundary line of fantasy must not be crossed, the seats on either side of each audience member are empty. The only action allowed is the most symbolic, the action that allows a momentary trespass into the stage area, the laying down of the dollar bill on the ramp next to the dancer. It's as if a symbolic penis has broken through the line of demarcation, the barrier between, into the world of desire. That's all you're going to get at the Eva. Foul Perfection, Thoughts on Caricature JCW Commissioned by and first published in Art Forum, Volume 27, January 1989, pages 92 to 99, this essay was written partly in response to what Kelly called the new mannerism of the late 1980s, a term that embraces the recycling of reductive high modernist tropes in the more attenuated forms of commodity art, neo-geo, and the like, 
as well as new styles of art making that sexualized modernist imagery of the natural, especially biomorphic abstraction. He aimed to offer desublimated readings of the work of some of his contemporaries by probing the assumptions of modernist discourse around the counterclassical themes of the grotesque body, low culture, and irony, and to question modernism's negatively coded assumptions about these kinds of reference. The text that follows combines some of the editorial changes made by David Frankel at Art Forum with modifications, including the provision of new endnotes, made by Kelly and myself for the present volume. The term caricature calls to mind the shoddy street corner portrait, comic depictions of celebrities that line the walls of bars, or the crude political cartoons in the opinion section of the daily newspaper, Philistine images, which provoke indifference or disgust in the educated art lover. In part, perhaps, because of these strong negative connotations, Numerous artists have attempted to draw caricature into the sphere of fine art. We encounter new evocations of caricature in the hot Let's Have Fun populism of funk and East Village art and in the moralizing Let's Get Serious populism of agitprop, as well as in the cooler arena of pop and the post-Rauschenberg formalism of painters such as David Sell. In most of these efforts at incorporation, the line between low art and high art remains firm, caricature is an alien element, tamed, digested, and transformed from its lowly status to a higher one through the magic intervention of art. At present, the cooler aesthetic dominates, and is more critically sanctioned. Much contemporary artwork is made and interpreted with reference to the issues and history of reductivist practice especially minimalism. But the low art slash high art distinction has become cloudy in some of this work, for the incorporation of caricature is no longer the leading strategy as the work actually becomes caricature. The historical referencing of reductivist paradigms here is only a legitimizing facade, concealing what is, in effect, a secret caricature, an image of low intent masquerading in heroic garb. The genre of caricature we know today, a portrait that deliberately transforms the features of its victims so as to exaggerate and thus expose their faults and weaknesses, it is of relatively recent origin. Unknown before the 16th century, its development is usually attributed to the Italian Baroque painters Ludovico and Annibale Carracci. According to its earliest definitions, caricature, from carica to load, as in a loaded portrait, was associated, primarily, with an aggressive gesture. Yet, at the same time, a writer in the circle of John Lorenzo Bonini claimed that caricature seeks to discover a likeness through abbreviation, one by such means, he suggested, it comes nearer to truth than does reality. Point two, as the Karachi themselves realize from the beginning, caricature is at root based on the idea of an essence or inner truth. With this aim in mind, caricature has a kind of good twin in less discordant attempts to essentialize the human form. As Ernst Chris suggests, art to the age of the Karachi and of Poussin no longer meant a simple imitation of nature. The artist's aim was said to be to penetrate into the innermost essence of reality, to the Platonic idea, Panofsky, 1924, inspiration, 
the gift of vision that enabled the artist to see the active principle at work behind the surface of appearance. Expressed in these terms the portrait painter's task was to reveal the character, the essence of the man in an heroic sense, that of the caricaturist provided the natural counterpart, to reveal the true man behind the mask of pretense and to show up his essential littleness and ugliness. Point three. As Chris points out, although they may appear on the surface to be very different, caricature, which uses deformation in the service of ridicule, and the idealized, heroic, classicist portrait, are founded in similar essentialist assumptions. Albert Boehm underlines this idea in a discussion of Jacques Louis David's neoclassical paintings and monstrous political cartoons, on which he worked side by side. Point for the duality of distortion apparent here, making things better, on the one hand, and making them worse on the other, announces, I think, a primary dichotomy in modernist art. For the distortions of modernist art seem to be realized, predominantly, in one of two modes, expressive abstraction or reduction. My own undergraduate art education was organized around an endless succession of assignments that aimed to perfect these binary methods of producing art objects. Two examples will suffice, one was a life-drawing exercise in which, once comfortable with the depiction of a figure, the hand was allowed to roam on its own, producing an extension of the figure linked by essence to the original model but dissimilar enough to have a life of its own. The second had to do with drawing from reproductions of old master paintings, but reducing them down to their primary forms, the essential cubes, spheres, and cones that constitute them, or, more essential yet, the squares, circles, and triangles. This latter effort was clearly a contemporary sort of Platonism, though where once the painter built up from ideal forms, we moderns were expected to reduce back down to them. As for the first exercise, it was obviously related to the intentional distortions of caricature. Yet it was idealized, stripped of caricature's aggressive tendencies. The exercise posited modernist expressionism as an essentialism that dispensed with the negative. This was appropriate, since a fine art, art associated with the high ideas of culture, is, traditionally, seldom confrontational or vituperative. Despite the contributions of artists like George Gross or John Hartfield, much modernist art was ostentatiously high. This was as true of expressionists like Willem de Kooning as it was of reductivists like Piet Mondrian. In general, the difference for which the expressionist artist strove was situated around the split not between the bad and the good, but between the orderly and the expressive. This polarity, however, was seldom able to function outside of a whole set of intertwined dichotomies, organic-slash-geometric, adorned-slash-unadorned, soft-slash-hard, personal-slash-social, female-slash-male. Modernism may have imagined itself above caricature, but it progressed unavoidably into what it was trying to avoid, bad versus good, and the aesthetics of morality. It seems appropriate here to bring up the old distinction between caricature and the grotesque. At first the word grotesque was used to describe the kind of fantastic, intricately patterned decorations, pastiches of setters, 
cupids, fruit, foliage, festoons, knots, bows, that came into use after the discovery, in the 15th century, of such earlier inventions in the ruins of ancient Rome. Point 5 Vasari describes the pleasure taken by Renaissance artists and their patrons in these newly unearthed models. And Michelangelo began his career as a painter of them. Point 6 Part of the appeal of the grotesque was the notion that it was a product of pagan painters who were at liberty to invent whatever they pleased, it represented artistic freedom. Implicit in this notion was an equation of paganism with hedonism, and it is interesting to note that the blame for pornography as well as for the grotesque has been attributed to pagan culture. In The Secret Museum, Pornography in Modern Culture, Walter Kendrick traces the roots of modern pornography back to the discovery of the erotic murals in Pompeii.7 deemed suitable for both public and holy places, and clearly much admired in Roman times, grotesque ornament eventually fell from grace. With the rise of Vitruvian notions of architecture, the motifs of the grotesque, which Vasari had described as divine, beautiful and imaginative fantasies, were equated with the irrational, the irregular, the licentious, and the immoral. To the Vitruvians, the noblest art was a classically based mathematical and pure abstraction which reflected the perfect harmony of God's universe that they soon discovered that although the ornaments of Nero's Golden House 9 were products of classical culture, they came from its decadent phase, they were manifestations of Rome in decline. Soon, the word grotesque became associated with the foul and ugly. By the 19th century it was closely linked to caricature, so that an image that employed distortion might be described almost interchangeably by either term. Thus the fantasticness of grotesque decoration took on an overtly negative connotation. By the early 1900s, decoration and ornament were viewed as the antithesis of good practice by the form-follows-function school of architecture and the reductivist design sensibilities of modernist groups like the still. At issue were not just principles of utilitarianism but moral fundamentals. A strain of high modernist extremism pronounced that decoration was primitive, uncivilized, even repugnant. Writing in 1898, the architect Adolf Luce put it this way. The less civilized a people is, the more prodigal it will be with ornament and decoration. The red Indian covers every object, every boat, every oar, every arrow over and over with ornament. To regard decoration as an advantage is tantamount to remaining on the level of a red Indian. But the red Indian within us must be overcome. The Red Indian says that woman is beautiful because she wears golden rings in her nose and in her ears. The civilized person says this woman is beautiful because she has no rings in her nose and in her ears. To seek beauty only in form and not to make it depend on ornament, that is the aim towards which the whole of mankind is tending. Point 10. Gombrich also quotes from Luce's later essay, Ornament and Crime, 1908. The Papians slaughter their enemies and eat them. They are not criminals. If, however, a man of this century slaughters and eats someone he is a criminal or a degenerate. The Papians tattoo their skin, 
their boats, their oars, in short everything within reach. They are not criminals. But the man of the century who tattoos himself is a criminal or a degenerate. The urge to ornament one's face and everything within reach is the very origin of visual arts. It is the babbling of painting. All art is erotic. Luce's Evolutionist Association of Ornament and Eroticism with tribal beliefs that are still residual in modern times recall some of the evolutionist arguments and assumptions of Sigmund Freud. In The Uncanny, 1919, Freud attributes feelings of terror produced by ordinary, familiar things to a repressed belief in the omnipotence of thoughts, a belief once held by our ancestors that we carry in us as a kind of racial memory. The uncanny is associated with the omnipotence of thoughts, with the prompt fulfillment of wishes, with secret injurious powers and with the return of the dead. We, or our primitive forefathers, once believed that these possibilities were realities and were convinced that they actually happened. Nowadays, we have surmounted these modes of thought, but we do not feel quite sure of our new beliefs, and the old ones still exist within us ready to seize upon any confirmation. As soon as something actually happens in our lives which seems to confirm the old, discarded beliefs we get a feeling of the uncanny, it is as though we were making a judgment something like this, so, after all, it is true that one can kill a person by the mere wish. 11. For Freud, our primitive history accounts for both occasional feelings of uncanniness and our enjoyment of modes of entertainment that evoke these sensations in a controlled way. For Luz, our ancestral background is criminal. His world conception precludes the experience of pleasure in images of sublimation, which he sees as mirror reflections of what is being sublimated, and thus as tokens or embodiments of the continuance of such feelings in the present. For Luce, the preservation of a criminal, erotic ornament only serves to maintain criminality and eroticism in the world. Its erasure, on the other hand, would, he felt, help engender a chaste and orderly society. Luce himself is prone to a kind of primitive thinking, to a belief in the magic of the image, in the notion that like effects like, that the image is in essence the same as what it shows. Hence the intensity of his iconoclasm, for the belief in the equality of image and imaged is the hallmark of the censor. As Chris suggests, wherever it is not considered a joke but rather a dangerous practice to distort a man's features, even on paper, caricature as an art cannot develop. Contrary to Luce, the action of the grotesque caricature is in some sense internal, an idea more than an event. Chris continues. The caricaturist's secret lies in the use he makes of controlled regression. Just as his scribbling style and his blending of shapes evokes childhood pleasures, so the use of magic beliefs in the potency of his transformations constitutes a regression from rationality. For this to happen the pictorial representation had to be removed from the sphere where the image stimulates action. The hostile action is confined to an alteration of the person's likeness only this interpretation contains criticism. Aggression has remained in the aesthetic sphere and thus we react not with hostility but with laughter. Point 12.
The world Luce envisioned, of course, has not and could not come about. For its emergence would demand the excision of that signal part of the human persona that expresses itself in the ornament against which Luce contended, or in the grotesque and in caricature. Discussing David's political cartoons, Boehm notes that caricature's use of deformation relates specifically to a Freudian model of the unconscious. The Oedipal complex constitutes the beginnings of the forms of political and social authority, the regulation and control through the superego or conscience. On the other hand, the political caricature permits the displaced manifestation of the repressed aggressive desire to oust the father. The political enemy, or the subject of distortion, becomes the projection of the hated parent and through caricature can be struck down. Point 13. Alluding to Freudian theory, Boehm adds that children bestow upon the anal product the status of their own original creation, which they now deploy to gain pleasure in play, to attain the affection of another, feces as gift, to assert personal ownership, feces as property, or to act out hostility against another, feces as weapon. Thus some of the most crucial areas of social behavior, play, gift, property, weapon, develop in the anal phase and retain their connection with it into adulthood. By exposing the disguised, sublimated, anality behind neoclassicism, rational state, organized religion, hierarchical authority, David reaffirmed the connection between political caricature and his high art 14. Scatological imagery abounds in caricature and other forms of satire. From Greek comedies through the writings of Francois Rabelais, 1483-1443, and Jonathan Swift, 1667-1745, to contemporary forms of low humor, anal and fecal imagery are frequently used in a political context. Sandor Ferenczi goes so far as to claim that diarrhea is anti-authoritarian, in that it reduces educational measures, toilet training, to an absurdity. It is a mockery of authority. 15. If feces can be an agent of besmirchment, so can any foul substance associated with taboo, and thus with repression. The use of bodily fluids, entrails, garbage, and animals such as frogs, toads, and snakes to decorate an authority figure is a literal enactment of Luce's conception of criminal ornamentation. An aside. The current television game show called Double Dare features on the verge of adolescent boy-slash-girl teams in sports activities that often require them to cover each other in gooey foodstuffs. Point 16. At certain points they must fish into suspicious, tactile substances labeled brain juice, mashed maggots, fish lips, dead worms, and so on, in order to win prizes. Part of the show's attraction to kids that age surely arises from their fear of their dawning sexuality, which is associated with taboo, or disgusting, activities and substances. Bruno Bettelheim's discussion of the Frog Prince fairy tale is relevant here, a young girl must sleep with or kiss a frog, and feels revulsion at having to do so, but when the task is completed, the frog becomes a desirable prince. The story Bettelheim remarks, confirms the appropriateness of disgust when one is not ready for sex, 
and prepares for its desirability when the time is ripe. 17. The format of Double Day was modified as Family Double Day in 1988, with the additions of Moms and Pops, whose submersion in gunk obviously has a different meaning, the pure pleasure of defiling an authority figure. In low comedy and political cartoons, reductive and distortional practices exist side by side. Here, both approaches are set up to attack false or hated authority, for in the context of caricature's distortions, the refined heroic figure becomes a comic butt. In a fine art, on the other hand, reduction tends to be associated with the revelation of the ideal. Today, probably the most common type of public sculpture is made with geometric forms and volumes. And fine artists tend to keep distortion and reduction apart, predicated on assault and distortion, David's political cartoons, for example, were meant for the popular audience, while his salon paintings were based on idealizing classical principles. Both reduction and distortion are rarely used aggressively in fine art. In one of his pair of etchings, Dream and Lie of Franco, 1937, Picasso depicts the dictator as an entry-like being who at one point gives birth to a litter of frogs and snakes. Point 18. But the mimicry of popular political forms here is atypical. More commonly, Picasso moves toward essentialist reduction. In works such as Wounded Bull, Horse and Nude Woman and The Bullfight, both 1934, from the 1930s, his most bodily period, he subjects some of his most potentially violent images, the swooning woman, the well-hung bull, the eviscerated horse, to a process of reduction and crystallization. But as we can see by comparing Picasso's stylization of organic forms to the treatment of a similar theme in J. G. Ballard's science fiction novel The Crystal World, 1966, reduction can signify more than ennoblement. If Picasso's reductions tend to accentuate the tragic, intensely emotional nature of his subjects, ballads are deadening and ultimately apocalyptic. In The Crystal World, 1966, The Drought, 1965, The Drowned World, 1962, and other fictions, Ballad approaches the theme of the end of the world not as a cataclysm but as a slow process of homogenization. Time stops when things have been reduced to one essential property, crystal, earth, water. The positive aspects of this transformation, a version of the mystical notion that all is one, are here equated with a kind of addiction, in the crystal world, characters previously crystallized but now revived seek to return to their pleasant, former state of non-identity. The impulse brings to mind Roger K. Lewis's definition of mimicry in nature as depersonalization by assimilation to space 19 and, ultimately, Freud's concept of the death instinct, the desire to annihilate the ego reflecting a desire to return to the uterine existence before the ego's formation. The death instinct is embedded in a good deal of the art production of the 1960s and 1970s, especially minimalism and serial practices concerned with the objectification or freezing of time through repetition. Though the surface meaning of much of this art has to do with structure and material, such works ultimately refer back to and mirror the bodily presence of the viewer. 
The basis of Michael Fried's attack on minimalism, 20 This thesis was born out in later body art, which applied reductivist tendencies to complex psychological and corporeal issues. If minimalism was well-mannered, this work was viewed as confrontational, even grotesque. Bruce Nauman's films of repeated body movements and manipulations e.g. Pulling Mouth, 1969, Face Up, 1973, Vito Acconci's evocation of architectural libido in Seedbed, 1971, Chris Burden's packaging of the fear of violence as sculpture in Shoot, 1971, were all posed across the modernist moral schism between form and decoration. They proposed an aesthetic of sculpting with flesh. The very practices that Luce had attacked as criminal were in body art perversely redefined as essential gestures, marking the body, piercing it, distorting it. Yet all this was done in a removed, formal way. The difference between the distortion of the body in much body art and in expressionist performance and painting can in some ways be compared to one distinction between the grotesque and caricature. In caricature, distortion serves a specific purpose, in most cases to defame, while in the grotesque it is done for its own sake, as a formalized displacement of parts. Its only purpose is to surprise the viewer. From this formalist point of view, the whole Loat pictorial tradition of the monster can be viewed as an expression of the pleasure of shuffling the components of a form. Psychologically, however, there is a great difference between shuffling squares on a paper, or flowers in a vase, and reordering the human figure. The grotesque displacement of the order of the body is a mainstay of popular art. Cartoons and horror films provide numerous examples of it, and in many of these the move toward abstraction is consciously erotic. The ambiguous humanity of these distorted images creates a tension between attraction and repulsion. As it is disordered, the whole comes to take on the image of its parts, and the parts that most often come to the foreground are the genitals. The monstrous figure truly becomes an erotic ornament. The dichotomy of soft and hard becomes dominant, and animated and still cartoons are filled with jokes about various parts of the body replacing genital capacity for flaccidity or erection. The best examples are in the work of Tex Avery, Basil Wolverton, and the 1960s car culture monster artists Ed, Big Daddy, Roth and Mouse.21 Although these artists treat the whole body as erectile, the eyes and tongue are the most common genital substitutes, Avery's animated films of the 1940s are non-stop visual jokes. Little Rural Riding Hood, 1949, for instance, features a wolf in extreme states of sexual arousal manifested by his eyes blowing out of their sockets or his tongue rolling out of his mouth onto the floor. The forte of Wolverton's work from the 1940s through the 1970s is the monstrous depiction of disordered, exaggerated faces, often accompanied by ludicrous explanations as to how they got that way. Once again, huge, distended eyes often play a major role. And the 1960s images of Roth and Mouse link these same characteristics to the images of the outlaw biker and the car fanatic. Their work pairs the grotesque with the dirty, the criminal, and the hedonistic. 
The caption of a red fink drawing in the Ed Big Daddy Roth Monster coloring book reads, What is colored rotten to the core, garbage and go poison in every pore, and warped forevermore. Yours truly, R.F. 22 Surprisingly, though, the usual order is reversed in these drawings, the association of the grotesque with the disgusting is positive here, these monstrous figures are meant to be role models. Popular horror, crime, and pornographic film and literature all explicitly address the disordered sexual body. In his dystopian science fiction novel Dr. Edda, 1984, Kate W. Jeter, for example, inverts Luce's utopian evolutionary development, instead of moving away from the sculpting of the body, the society of the future makes it a mainstay. In the world Jeter describes, plastic surgery has reached such a point of refinement that bodily, and especially genital, transformation can be based directly on repressed sexual trauma, a one-to-one -one relationship can be created between one's unconscious and one's physical shape. The book's descriptions of genitals reworked into Baroque, pathetic convolutions of the vulva, other parts shining wet like fleshy sea plants, 23 obviously reflect pre-adolescent misunderstandings of the sexual body, and playfully elaborate on the connection between the ornamental and the erotic. Again, most of David Cronenberg's films are concerned with an uncanny depiction of the sexual body in which the parts that constitute us become frightening and unfamiliar. In Dead Ringers, 1988, for example, we follow the development of two identical male twins from their youthful ignorance of the specifics of sexual difference to their adult careers as gynecologists and then to their double death in a black parody of sexual union and psychotic gynecological surgery. Because it is supposedly a picture of real life, perhaps most disturbing is the genre of the true crime story. Behind the fixation in this literature on the mutilation murder is the attraction-slash-repulsion of viewing the abstracted body. The description of the crime scene in Killing for Company, 1985, Brian Masters's account of the career of mass murderer Dennis Nelson, is almost loving in its detail, clinically informing us how the killer broke a body down to pack it into a series of shopping bags, carefully dissecting it until he came to the innards, which were all mixed together in a disgusting, impersonal pottage. 24 Nelson also made drawings of his victims, sometimes in stages of dissection, which are literally still. Lives, Nature's Morts, a genre quite different from the harmless aestheticization of caricature proposed by Chris. The murderer has countered the frightening complexity of the body with a counterlurge to package it, to break it down into controllable lumps, to find its essence, of course, unsuccessfully. Recent horror films, called splatter films because of their copious blood and gore, continue the depiction of the body as grotesque. Point 25 As in the original Roman decorations, the body becomes an accumulation of pieces at odds with each other, a group of parts that refuse to become whole. While the horror film has always been concerned with the uncanny presence of the body, its recent incarnations stressed the body's composite nature with increasing intensity. The monster in James Whale's Frankenstein, 1931, may be made up of components from many sources, 
but it is ruled by a mechanistic notion of wholeness. Like a modernist collage, although it is fractured, composed of multiple scavenged pieces, it still operates as a totality. The erectile intestine that blows out of the torso of a walking corpse to strangle its victim in the horror film Reanimator, 1985, on the other hand, reflects the fetishization of the body part. Here the body is not total but corporate, a linked compilation of separate entities. Both Reanimator and John Carpenter's The Thing, 1982, feature pastiche creatures that when cut apart simply keep on existing as part beings. What could be more horrific to an essentialist like Luce than this depiction of the world as an accumulation of animated ornaments stripped from their primary forms? Interestingly, pornography is organized in much the same way, it tends to be body part specific. Pornographic photographs and films often use close-ups, encapsulating the erotic entirety in the fragment, as if sex were a puppet show acted out by detached members. The whole terrain of pornographic magazines is organized according to body part or substance, there are male or female genital magazines, ass magazines, breast magazines, feet magazines, cum magazines, etc. While a cartoonist like Roth pictures the genitals obliquely, as distortions of other corporeal parts, pornography shows them literally. At the same time, pornographic parts are cut out and isolated, and thus no less metaphoric, they become objectified stand-ins and irreal substitutes for themselves. In this way they gain the distance of the fetish point 26 repressed into abstraction, they rise pleasurably back into consciousness in their new form. In contemporary high art, the work most obviously related to the grotesque image of the reordered body seems, on the surface, to be an extension of organic abstraction, as in the paintings of Bill Komorski, Larry Pittman, and Carol Dunham. My earlier discussion of the split between hard and soft is important here. Clearly, the modernist opposition of adorned to unadorned is an extension of old ideas attributing the characteristics of gender to design motifs. The association of spanners with masculinity and ornateness with femininity has a long history. A 16th-century drawing, for example, substitutes male and female statues, respectively, for Doric, simple, and Corinthian, fancy, architectural columns, illustrating the Vitruvian notion of the humanization of the orders. Point 27 and in contemporary parlance, hard and soft are often associated with gender orientations, hard and soft rock. For example, point 28 continuing this division into the moral sphere, it is obvious that Luce's notion of ornamental criminality is coded feminine. Many modern artworks underline the equation of the soft and the decorative with the feminine as a negative, distortional device, a tactic of caricature. Consider Salvador Dali's softening of the perspectival solidity of objects in the melting forms of his canvases, Clay's Oldenburg's softening of consumer products and household objects in his malleable sculpture, and the softened forms in Peter Saul's versions of political representations and fine art masterpieces. All bear witness to male artists using supposedly feminine softness to attack and destabilize rigid patriarchal order. At the same time, 
the appropriation of hard or geometric formats by artists such as Sherry Levine reveals a female co-option of male order. What we confront here is a kind of artistic gender bending. For Komoski, Pittman, and Dunham, the key reference are the essentialist picturing of the blob as an icon of nature and the expressiveness of gestural painting. Yet neither of these rings true, all the signs of meaning turn in on themselves. The references to nature are obviously rooted in popular sources, and the eroticism of the decoration is a self-conscious construct, formalized to the point where it actually becomes unerotic. Nature, eros, the horrific, and the body are filtered through the codes of essentialism. This is what gives the work its double edge, and what allows it to escape the bonds of modernism's simplistic dualism. Another contemporary camp is based around an extension of geometric reductivism, historically the more masculine, heroic a kind of abstraction. Here cruelty is more apparent. Perhaps softness calls for restraint. In any case, recent dialogues with the minimalist paradigm also relate to the tradition of caricature. Reductive, essentially heroic primal forms lend themselves easily to the role of authority figure. Thus it is only right that we should want to defame them. Amy Rankin, now Amy Morgana, Debbie Davis, and Liz Lana are female sculptors who all defy the chastity of minimalism to reinscribe the body. On first view, Rankin's exhibitions resemble rows of Don Judd-like wall pieces, but on closer inspection her cubes reveal themselves as Pandora's boxes, filled with scenes of cruelty and eroticism. Davis reveals the cruelty of the primal form itself by using it to shape casts of dead animals, a cube of cast chicken carcasses, say. Lana makes antiseptic geometric receptacles to reveal geometry's destructive is soul, a cube is formed of bar-making and bronze sculpture casting materials, or a clear glass rectangle holds a petri dish of bacteria. The work of John Miller and Maya Weissman operates similarly, Miller's by overlaying a politics of anality on geometric formalism, Weissman's by pairing a generic stand-in for painting with references to the taboo, the infantile, and the sexual, rubber nipples, toilet seats, greased holes, and, tellingly, caricatures. One of the initial attractions of the caricature was the speed with which it could be executed, as if its spontaneity set it closer to the original workings of the mind than a more considered drawing. This aesthetic of haste contributed to the adoration once lavished on Michelangelo's unfinished, slave, carvings, in which the figure, barely freed from the stone, appears to be receding back into the platonic archetype that gave it birth. Point 29 In 1981, Charles Ray made a sculpture called In Memory of Sodat, a rectangular steel box positioned on the floor from which a human arm and leg extend. These organic marks on the geometric primal form are a distortion. A foul primal form is a caricature of the very notion of perfection, and when we see this, like the children on double dare when they see their parents and teachers covered in a disgusting mess, we cannot hold back a shout of glee.